Hello and welcome to Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems. Today, we are going to explore the issue of digital disruption and how it is affecting Canada and other countries. Social media, such as Facebook and Twitter, are ubiquitous in our society and in our lives. We use them to share our life stories, discuss and debate issues, but there is a downside to this that needs to be appreciated, understood and handled. Misinformation, disinformation and interference by bad actors is prevalent on social media and it is having severe consequences. Yeah, absolutely, Senator. We've seen these platforms be used by ad bad actors to sow discontent between communities. We've even seen them to interfere in elections. To delve into this issue, we had a great conversation with MP Nate Erskine-Smith. He worked with fellow MPs in Canada and others in the UK to have a collective response to this troubling issue. Let's get to the interview. Hello and welcome to Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems. Today we are going to explore digital disruption. Social media giants such as Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, even TikTok are ubiquitous in our lives. We rely on them to get news, share life stories, discuss issues, find community and so much more that is good. There's no doubt about that, but there is an underbelly to the story and this needs to be understood and somehow dealt with and managed. Misinformation is prevalent on social media and it is having severe consequences. To help us in this con conversation, we are really delighted to be talking to MP Nate Erskine-Smith. Nate is a member of parliament from Beaches East York in Toronto. Since Nate became the MP on October 19, 2015, he has been known as a maverick in parliament and in his party, often breaking with his party on issues of importance. Before politics, Nate was a lawyer at a commercial litigation firm in downtown Toronto, working on a range of, in, of causes which included public interest matters in court and research for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Thank you, Nate, for taking the time to speak with us today. So Thanks before we, me. oh, delighted. So before we get into the subject matter of social media and disruption, I'm curious about, you know, why, why did you get into politics? While many people have a negative perception of politics, I think, unfortunately, mm -hmm. and sometimes those of us in politics help contribute to that, I have a very different view. I, I think like you, Ratna, I think that politics is one of the ways, maybe the way that we can make the biggest difference in other people's lives. When we face collective action problems, it requires working together through government and working together through government leads us to politics. I studied politics and law, political philosophy, jurisprudence for a very long time <laughs> over the course of my academic career. And there is just this huge disconnect, obviously, between what politics I think should be and how people perceive politics. And then when now prime minister, when he was liberal, then liberal leader, he was calling for open nominations, more grassroots democracy. He was calling for younger people to get involved in politics, and he was calling for freer votes and empowering parliamentarians. I was quite frustrated with the government of the day, if we remember the Harper years, and I didn't think that climate change was getting the attention that it deserved. I wanted to see criminal justice reform and really just evidence-based decision-making, but also 
I, I appreciate many of my conservative colleagues and, you know, Michael Chong, I think, is an example of mm -hmm. someone who has stood up and exercised greater independence. I also value our parliamentary institutions in that way as well. And so I thought, what's the worst thing that can happen? And I threw my name into the ring in Beaches East York, where there just so happened to be an open nomination. And it's where I have lived the vast majority of my life, where I grew up and now where I'm lucky enough to be raising my own two kids. So, so yeah. That's actually a, a really great message because politics is is the way to making much change, not all change, but much change. And I noticed uh, when you were answering uh, the question, you talked about, you know, being your own person, even within a party. Uh, and, and you took the then leader of the liberals at his word on free votes and, and you have voted on your conscience, with your conscience, sometimes with the party, sometimes against the party. What's that been like? It has not always been e easy, I wouldn't say. Yeah. It, it has, though, increasingly been easier insofar as, it, like anyone that you're meeting for the first time, it's hard to judge them based upon initial interactions, whereas once you have uh, you've you've known them for a more significant period of time. You've seen some advocacy that has been obviously really supportive of the party, some advocacy that has been more critical. And I, I try as, as much as reasonably possible to focus on substantive disagreements and ideas and, and make sure when I do disagree, I disagree as reasonably as possible. So I think that has helped in the course of you know, the last five, six mm -hmm. years where, where I have stood up and disagreed um, to make sure that it is based on a principled argument and, and based on ideas. But I think collectively, my colleagues can look to my overall record and say, sometimes he stands up and, and stands up and gives us a hard time. Sometimes we actually come around to his position. There have been moments along those lines as well. And uh, overall, though, he, he's, you know, he, he's been a, a, a contributing member of the team because there is, a, I think it's, a necessary element of our politics, but it also can be an unfortunate element when we put too much of an emphasis on it, this notion of politics as a team sport, right? And so I think we have to accept that reality to some extent, but we also have to push back against that in some ways. And so it's been not always e easy, but uh, over time when I, when I think, sir, it was much harder early on. And I would say the hardest part about it is not, you know, I'm going to upset the whip or I, you know, I, I've spent many, I've spent a significant amount of time on the whip's couch, uh, especially, <laughs> especially early on. But I, I, I would say that the hardest part is just when your colleagues are saying, hey, this is going to make it harder on me. Uh, that That's a challenge that you have to navigate. Yeah. But in the end, we're all in different teams too, right? Like I'm on the liberal team, but I'm also, I've got my local riding association, my local community. I, there are experts that I'm engaged with. There are, we have to accept that the reasons the party wants to vote in a particular way are reasons we have to consider and take seriously, but they're not, we don't just say, well, because of that, that's how I'm going to, to vote. They're, they're one factor among other factors, unless it's a platform promise we've made, right? So I think there are, I don't agree with every platform promise we make, but there is a commitment as a matter of building trust, we should follow through on the promises we've made. So, but there are lots of issues that arise outside of the electoral commitments we make in, in the course of an election. And there you do have to bring not only the evidence to bear, your constituents' judgment to bear, but also your party's views. Well, actually, I remember actually when I was working with uh, Minister Bryson uh, when you were first elected and we were, <clears throat> one of my responsibilities was the, was the ethics committee in the House. And 
and certainly right from day one, you were a maverick, you had your own <laughs> thoughts. And, and to be honest with you, it actually made the work of the committee better. So I, I, I will freely and, and, and completely tell you that because it made it better made some of my work a little bit more difficult <laughs> at times, uh, but the work coming out of the committee was 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 better for sure. So let's get into our sort of main topic for today, and it, it is the social disruption. And, and as the senator said, you know, we have social media giants, Facebook, Twitter, etc. They're all over the place. Everyone uses them. Everyone is relying on them. Uh, you know, you can't go, you know, every whatever Sunday I get a notification on my phone, how long I've been on my phone for that week, you know, per day type of thing. Uh, but what are you sort of viewing as the major challenges that you see uh, to deal with social media for the good things and the bad things? And, and how can lawmakers grapple with them? So you mentioned the FE committee and by the way, if I'm giving the government a hard time, then it probably means I'm doing my job. So I'm glad to hear that. The The work of the Ethics Committee, the work you're referencing is related to access to information, but we then spent the bulk of our time in the last parliament focused on privacy reform. And that really led us to the issue of in improving the regulatory apparatus we have. PIPA specifically as it relates to privacy legislation for the private sector. but the consequences that that has and, and the need for that new legislation and the update as it relates to how people are increasingly li living their lives online, including using social media. And we then, after completing that study, I want to say it was February 2018, we tabled the report and I'm not sure how many people read the report initially, but then Cambridge Analytica happened. And so we then did a follow up study, almost a case study in some ways where we, we went down the rabbit hole of Cambridge Analytica. And so our initial, I would say, twin focuses principally started out privacy, but then quickly moved to election interference. And there are obviously other areas of that, that require consideration. And we can talk about the, uh, the International Grand Committee, which has moved starting really with election interference and, and uh, privacy issues too, but started out of Cambridge Analytica. And then we've really moved, I would say, to three or four categories. First, you know, there's the question of privacy. Two, there's the question of election interference. Three, there's the question though of online harms and misinformation and disinformation more broadly, including outside of elections. We see it right now with the COVID crisis where there's been rampant misinformation in some cases that w in the end has cost lives. And then we can talk about algorithmic accountability as, as, as far as misinformation goes, but also I think even more broadly than that. And then there are design issues. You mentioned the notification you get about how long you've been on your phone. Well, there are really smart people like Tristan Harris who came to our committee and talked about design issues that speak in some ways to the other issues I've mentioned at times, but can be separate apart, especially when we talk about kids. Are, are we designing the our companies designing the systems in a way to be safe, in a way to encourage behavior that is positive for our kids or positive for all of us. And uh, those are sometimes questions for regulation, sometimes just question for, questions for education. But they're questions we're, we're, I think, only starting to grapple in a serious way as parliamentarians. And, and you mentioned already the sort of grand committee. Uh, let's just start there, because I think that's just an interesting thing for us, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. politics sort of people that, you know, work on the Hill and have worked on the Hill for, you know, for a number of years now. You know, how did that even come about, you know, in the sense of, you know, obviously parliamentarians in Canada, they have their committees, they do their work, uh, you know, senators are the same, um, you know, uh, 
but it's not often that common that two or parliamentarians from different countries actually form, as you said, an international grand committee on big data, privacy, and democracy. Like, how did that even happen? So this starts with a really strong working relationship as between the parliamentary committee in the UK that was grappling with Cambridge Analytica and our own parliamentary committee. And it just so happened, Cambridge Analytica, that scandal obviously played out in a really serious way for with great consequences for the UK. And Canada played a, a small role insofar as there was a Canadian company that was almost mm -hmm. a subcontractor, subsidiary in some ways of the SCL, which was the sort of parent company to Cambridge Analytica. And so there were a couple of Canadians that had been heavily involved in this story and they came to our committee. And so we, there was, there was really a partnership between our committees out of that where I, I remember we had the witnesses before us and they, we were putting questions to them at the time. Are you cooperating with the information commissioner in the UK? And they said, oh, of course we're cooperating. Yes, we're cooperating. And I literally, I'd done my seven minute round and I was waiting for my next round. And I got a, a message on my phone from Damien Collins, a conservative politician parliamentarian in the UK. And he said, I've just spoken to Elizabeth Denham, our information commissioner. We're following your testimony. And what they told you is incorrect. And I was able, to oh, wow. in real time put it back to the witness <laughs> yeah. in my in my second round and so we we had that really strong collaboration well a number of us then bob zimmer i should mention and charlie angus and peter kent you know uh, representing different parties we were all working collaboratively the same approach took place ian lucas of the labor party and damian collins as an example of conservatives they were working quite closely so we then were at a conference in Washington together and it was really born out of a conversation at a pub there where Bob speaking to Damien and Ian and myself, we hammered out this idea of is there greater collaboration between our two committees and Damien really took the lead and Bob took the lead as the chairs of our respective committees and they created this international grand committee sounds really bizarre. Obviously it's not language we have in the Canadian context. It is a UK phrase. It seems that uh, they call them grand committees. And so this became an international grand committee as far as special committees go. But it, it, the first one took place in London and it was a really fascinating experience. You know, you're sitting beside a senator from France who's engaged with these issues and there's a representative from Brazil who's engaged in these issues. And I think it was representatives from 10 or so parliaments. And then the second one we actually hosted in Ottawa in June of 2019. COVID's made it more challenging. We, we were to have, there was one I missed in Ireland because it was just after the election. Uh, so I think it was November 2019, I want to say. And then we, uh, the last one during COVID was supposed to have been in Washington. And so I'm hoping that, well, David Cicilline now from uh, from the US is quite actively involved. Jan Szczykowski from the US is, is increasingly involved as well. So we're, we're building membership. We're also thinking about what does it look like? Are we, are we gonna break it out into sort of regional subcommittees and then come together on an annual basis? Uh, so it's not entirely clear how the work goes forward, other than there will be this continued increased international collaboration, of course, because these are global problems and we need to work together to solve them uh, across global lines. So sticking with uh, with this grant committee and you know I'm I'm struck by what you said I mean you guys I think mainly guys I'm not sure got together in a pub and you know the power of personal interaction which is yeah. so missed in today's context but has 
and have any of the jurisdictions around the table uh, uh, initiated legislation uh, to deal with misinformation? Yes, we see the UK in particular, I think, has really mm -hmm. used the International Grant Committee for really important ends in terms of their own domestic goals. And we see an online safety bill, a new duty of care for platforms. The EU has been represented in not with an EU representative per se at the International Grant Committee, but with representatives from different countries. And we see through the EU Digital Services Act, there's an emphasis on increased transparency, algorithmic accountability, and a co-regulatory sort of framework as it relates to social media companies for standards. So I can't say that that is entirely born out of the Grand Committee in the same way that the UK's work, I, I think, likely is, um, or at least not as direct. Uh, and then there are other countries. This is, this is the tough. This is the tough part of the conversation, though, in some ways. So you look at other countries, and you look at, uh, you know, Singapore as an example. Mm -hmm. So what do you do when our free speech laws differ across jurisdictions, mm -hmm. and where are they going? Are certain countries, if they participate in the international grant committee, are they going to use this? concern around disinformation and misinformation to implement laws that we would be quite uncomfortable with here in Canada, but they implement them in their own domestic jurisdictions. So that is a, a question I think that we have to grapple with also internationally, just ensuring that yes, we're tackling this issue, but we're not we're not undermining other really important rights along the way. And uh, but yeah, the, I, I would say the and, and in Canada, I, I think this was I, I think a consequence of the International Grand Committee to some extent, but also just a consequence of our parliamentary work here in Canada through the Ethi Committee. In this parliament, it's going to be up again shortly, and it'll come to the Ethi Committee again for its legislative review. But C11 really seriously modernizes and updates our private sector privacy laws, and that is a consequence of the parliamentary work we did in the last parliament. Yeah, it's nice to sort of, you know, draw the line between uh, initial action and results. And I know that many of us in the Senate are looking forward to debating C11 when it comes to us. Yeah. Uh, you know, I read in the newspaper today, social media is is a mixed blessing in a way. You know, there's the good, the bad, the ugly. I read in the newspaper today, I'm sure you did too, about how some savvy people have put together a platform called Vaccine Hunters, helping oh, yeah, great, people, yeah. you know, really cool stuff. And then yet at yeah. the same time, you know, at the same time, you can have another platform that misdirects people and worse, even misinforms them and, and reinforces fears and bias and confusion. So do you think, and, and now we're going away from individual action to corporate action. Do you think uh, that uh, social media companies can and should be held to account? Yes, in different ways. I, I think there are some really obvious ways when to reference some of the work of, of the Grand Committee, that first meeting when we had a representative Facebook before us, he acknowledged, as Mark Zuckerberg has acknowledged, that they have not always acted in accordance with the values that they ostensibly hold and they they apologize you know you can look to the tragedy and genocide in Myanmar and obviously the platform there was used to spread rampant disinformation really harmful disinformation that exacerbated that crisis we've also seen the groups function on Facebook has obviously there's been 
it's encouraged connections for white nationalists as an example in a really yeah. problematic way so there have been unquestionable there have been missteps unquestionably that, for which there should be accountability we can talk uh, one one issue i didn't actually mention at the outset but is i know on the minds of david cicilline in the us you know uh, competition reform i think looms large in this conversation uh, we are starting yeah. to have this conversation at our parliamentary committee and and there's an issue where you know companies are increasingly held accountable in less so in this jurisdiction at the moment, but increasingly held accountable for their actions as it relates to competition. Uh, so there is accountability there. I, I don't think we have yet seen, though, as I say, EU, the EU Digital Services Act, we have a potential piece of legislation coming as it relates to online harms and, and specifically legal content here in Canada that the ministers talked about. There's obviously the Germ Germany was the first country to implement a set of rules like this. So we promised in the last election to basically say, yes, individual actors are going to upload content and some of it is positive, as you say, and some of it is negative and some of it is straight up illegal. And where it's illegal, the companies are going to be required to take it down within a particular amount of time. And if they don't, then there will be consequences. Um, and I think there ought to be accountability as it relates to privacy. Obviously, we, we are this is the importance of C11 in many respects, where it's it's empowering the privacy commissioner in a more serious way. We saw the FTC deliver significant fines in the billions of dollars as against Facebook. We saw the UK information commissioner say, you know, millions of pounds, and it would have been even more had they been able to deploy the full effect of the GDPR. And in Canada, no consequences as 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 it relates to real serious monetary damages. So yeah, there are all sorts of different ways that we ought to hold the companies accountable. I think transparency also looms large in this conversation as it relates to accountability. That oftentimes Facebook and others, Google included, have changed their practices not because of a new law, but because of transparency and the work of journalists, right? And and if we can enable that kind of transparency and therefore enable greater accountability, I think we'll see changes along those lines too. You talked, I think, briefly about algorithms and, and you know, uh, the whole issue of misinformation, disinformation does extend uh, to algorithms, which we all know uh, can have inherent biases built into them. Uh, and I'm now going away from social media and, you know, looking, thinking about search engines because I'm always surprised the kind of stuff that gets pushed to me because, you know, I looked at at something somewhere on Amazon and before I, I I know it, you know, I'm being pushed into buying other similar like products. Is policing the internet an option at all? Well, as it relates to algorithms, it can be really hard. And you'll speak to folks in the private sector who, who rightly say legislators will always have to play catch up. And it's mm -hmm. just a really hard thing for us to put the right set of tools in place. And PIPITA, while we are reforming it, is a good example of a legislative framework that sought to be principles-based rather than too prescriptive, knowing that it we, we want these kinds of legislation to stand the test of time as much as reasonably possible. And the more we're prescriptive with technology, the, the less this kind of legislation can do that. As it relates to algorithms, we have a really interesting example in the Canadian context from Treasury Board, where there is a requirement for public agencies to answer a series of questions before they deploy an algorithm 
that could have potential negative consequences and they answer a series of questions and depending upon the answers to those questions and the points and the point scoring system through this algorithmic impact assessment that is required they are placed in different risk categories and, and depending upon those risk categories there are different remedial actions required and i, I personally I, you know i don't have all the right answers but that is intuitively an appealing framework for the private sector and if you think of financial risk in banks well we require all sorts of companies to disclose material risks in the court that are that are public companies and it seems to me you know to reference the international grant committee when you have facebook and google attend before our international grant committee and when i put to them have you conducted algorithmic impact assessments and they say yes <laughs> will you disclose them no it seems to me there ought to be greater transparency there again as a matter of understand we don't we're not going to be able to understand everything that happens how that algorithm is working there are engineers at google in my community who tell me they don't understand how the algorithm yeah. works in full but we have to be able to understand inputs and outputs in a, in a at least on a, on a on a you know fairly simplistic basis and the executives at those companies if they're reviewing their algorithm algorithmic impact assessments to say here are the positives and here are the negatives we we should hopefully be we, we should really be aware of similar things mm. as a matter of the public interest. So I think there will hopefully be a greater conversation as it relates to that level of transparency. And and then potentially, you know, I, I speak to folks in the UK on this and, and they will say algorithms are promoting content and that is akin to a broadcasting function. And then there ought to be greater accountability there too, that they're not just a passive host anymore. As soon as they are pushing content into our feeds via an algorithm, then there ought to be accountability for that content as well. And there's a certain intuitive appeal to that as well. I, I wanted to ask you just to follow this line. Um, and I, I'm just curious on your answer. Um, you know, you you raise the, the Myanmar example of essentially Facebook and, and sharing of misinformation or disinformation or even real information in the sense of in a negative light really committed you know really um you know was an impact on the the genocide that happened there to the rohingya do you think criminal responsibility is also part of this or you know because i'm thinking like you know in rwanda in particular when when the genocide happened there one of the big pushers of of discord between the populations was the use of radio right so radio yeah. was was mm -hmm. was the the medium back then um and the you know Rwanda had to recover from that and there was some prosecutions and things like that. I'm wondering if there's any in your thought, is there any criminal responsibility there that that could be applied or should be applied, I guess, in this sort of context? I mean, I'm not I'm not sure. I, I think there have been I know there have been conversations in the US as it relates to ensuring that there's greater individual accountability for executives and for board members. I don't know with criminal liability, you obviously want there to be proper intent that they are fully you know they've got mens rea as to the the crime in question so kind of depends as to the effectiveness of a rule like that and just making sure that you are able to prosecute successfully because they do have that kind of mens rea so potentially i i do think whether it is criminal or civil i think the main concern i would have as it relates to fines and ensuring that fines are effective at policing action that they don't simply be a cost of doing business and that it, they are meaningful enough to change behavior and what we've seen at least in the canadian context 
whether it's privacy violations or a competition commissioner, these are costs of doing business and they aren't really significant enough to, to give the large companies pause at all. Now, you have mentioned that essentially that, you know, a lot of the dealing with social media, it's usually looking in the rear view mirror, right? So something has happened and then governments or whatever react. And I'm curious on this, on a different sort of more emerging issue that I don't think is fully appreciated yet about in the public about what the impacts are. And, and this is the use of uh, artificial intelligence yeah. creating videos that are fake and creating them to the point that they are so lifelike or so real, I guess is more, more accurate, so real that, 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 you know, that you don't even know the difference between what's real and, and what's fake. And, and I don't know if there is a role for government in this or whatever, but you know, maybe something, is there something that can be done for this more forward uh, thinking issue as AI continues to develop and get better and better as we go along? We did have some testimony I don't have a great answer. Uh, we did have some testimony at the privacy committee in the last parliament where we were seized with this question near the tail end of, of I would say, the last parliament. And nascent technology, it's not entirely clear what the legislative response ought to be insofar as there, there are some rules already that get us in some ways to address it insofar as, you know, if you misappropriate one's character and harm them in doing so, they can sue you for it. If you are defaming them in some way by using their character, they can sue you for it. Uh, there are real challenges though, as it relates to the spread of misinformation, and it may well be we need greater regulation. In the same way, when you look at facial recognition technology, we don't yet have a good answer as to how to regulate it. And so there have been calls to say, just put a pause on it entirely, at least in certain contexts like for the you know the police forces using uh, Clearview as an example, that we put a pause on it until we do are able to grapple with what standards ought to be brought to bear. So uh, yeah, that's a it is a real concern. It will be an increasing concern just how real those videos are. I'm I'm not I don't have a good answer as to what exactly we do about it just yet. If you do, let me know. <laughs> I think it's one of those ones that that we're going to have to grapple with, and I and I don't have any real good answers either, except using technology, maybe forcing companies to maybe use technology to, when when a, a video is shared, that they can find out if it's fake or not fake, so the individual user knows that it's fake or not. I don't know if there's a legislative solution there or not, but uh, companies should be aware of these things. I did want to ask you, uh, you know, the question, uh, you know. Um, we don't know when an election is going to happen, obviously. Uh, some people think it's sooner than later or whatever. Um, but in the next, say, year or two, you know, Canada will go back into an election at, at some point. Um, yeah. You know, in 2016, and you've already referenced this already, you know, the U.S. had lots of foreign interference uh, uh, in their election. But this past election in, in November, they, they said it was safe and secure. Do you think Canada is ready? for uh you know for an election not a, not specifically on covid and that that impact but more about foreign interference and making sure that you know canada's elections are free of foreign of interference yeah I'm, i i i think we are I, I think we were actually in 2019 and i think the 2016 us election really publicized the need to be prepared and then it was then minister karina gould in that portfolio at least who took action to, there was a rapid response unit, there was 
a new legislative regime put in place that included a transparency regime around advertising. And that's actually a really important lesson in some ways and, and could be expanded further. Now, when we look at misinformation, disinformation, advertising is, I think, the tip of the iceberg, but still an issue that could be addressed by way of a registry that isn't only during the writ period, but extends beyond and allows for, again, greater transparency in that way. But that that the set of rules we put in place were quite strict, such that Google didn't even participate in our election. And so far as I could place ads on Facebook that had to be delayed until approved, Mm-hmm. unlike the 2015 election, but I couldn't put ads on YouTube. And I spoke to Google reps recently and they're not going to, they don't plan at least at the moment to participate in the next one either. So I, I do think we, we gave election, the elections commissioner additional powers as well. And it, from what I could tell, we were well placed in 2019. That seemed to have been the evidence from the experts who, who look at these things. And I think we'll be well placed for the next one too because of the measures we put in place. And, and there's an area to wrap up to your earlier point. Are there legislative measures that either were born out of interna- international collaboration or in a different way, are there measures that we can look to to say, here's something good in Canada that we should show other countries we're doing and what else is happening around the world that we can maybe steal? Well, I think the rules we put in place for really strong and fair elections including online, are rules that other countries should look to. I'm, I'm going to now uh, uh, move into, because you, you just don't do this, you are active on many other fronts and you have a new uh, campaign, I believe, to decriminalize street drugs. I'm remembering the visceral debates in the Senate and the House of Commons in the country when we legalized cannabis. Do you think Canadians are ready for this? I do, yeah. It's, it's not so new in so far as I remember I remember writing an op-ed in Vice. I, I've advocated for this for a long time, but I remember writing an op-ed calling for decriminalization, calling for more than that actually, but decriminalization as a, as a first step towards more sensible drug policy. And the then leader of the Conservative Party went, you know, up in question period, ask the prime minister, the member from Beaches East York says he wants to legalize all drugs or whatever the case might be. And I was like, I, I just asked the prime minister a direct question and question period nearly. Um, and I think Andrew Shear, when he was uh, running for leader, he used that same mm-hmm. article in a fundraising appeal or something along those lines. So obviously conservatives have been willing to use it as a point of attack. And so to that extent, are Canadians ready? Well, it's going to be harder for them to be ready if they receive a, a bunch of misinformation about mm-hmm. what the proposal yep. really is. But I think unquestionably, we heard that the sky was going to fall around cannabis. It didn't. We listened to the experts and the systems functioned increasingly successfully. When we look at the opioid crisis, we've lost over 17,000 Canadians since early 2016. And we know we need greater solutions. And from police chiefs this past July to public health experts for years now, to prosecutors, to the Chief Justice of Ontario, to people with lived experience, people who have lost loved ones, everyone says the status quo is ineffective and is killing people. And so we obviously need to reform our drug laws and we need to stop punishing the people we want to help. And and that leads us to decriminalization. I I know there's a bill in the Senate right now uh, that was recently introduced to this end. I don't know if that's the perfect answer in so far as it allows for administrative sanctions and and might have a net widening effect in some ways, but it may be the answer. 
There is also a government bill right now, C-22, which copies a good part of a private member's bill I put forward that also seeks to really fetter the discretion of police and prosecutors to treat drug use as a health issue and to, to move us away from criminalization of simple possession. Uh, looking forward, though, if we're being honest, I spoke to Louise Arbour recently because she's on the mm -hmm. Global Commission of, of Drug Policy. And the real answer, if we want to tackle organized crime, which has effects here in Canada, but really debilitating effects in other parts of the world and fuels violence and destabilizes regimes through corruption. And if we want to save lives, because we know most Canadians who are dying in this opioid crisis are dying from an illicit but toxic drug supply that is poisoned. If we, if we really want to save those lives and tackle organized crime, it, it does mean a regulatory solution as opposed to just decriminalization. But I, I think as a first step, yeah, I think Canadians are ready for decriminalization. The, the word scares people because they don't always know what it means. But if we educate Canadians and explain it means treating drug use as a health issue, I think we win the day every time. Yeah. Uh, well, here's one Canadian who's on your side. I certainly wish you well on, on this uh, effort. Uh, you're also, uh, uh, um, you know, you, you you do a lot of work on the poverty side of uh, of things, and you chair the what is it called the anti poverty caucus in Parliament, yeah. which brings together MPs and senators. And I'm a member of your caucus. Um, what do you hope to achieve with this bicameral effort? It's an interesting caucus insofar mm -hmm. as your usual caucus is actually concentrated in the house of commons and is concentrated in specific parties and there can be greater effectiveness to those caucus efforts in some ways because people can be more candid and it can be more about coalition building within a party to really push and we can be more aggressive in some ways or people are more comfortable being aggressive i, th I mean I, maybe i don't suffer from the same reticence in some ways but but most more people are comfortable being you know more pointed and, and pushing on an issue internally at times the all-party format including both chambers was started by art Eagleton when he was a senator and when he was retiring, I, I had joined his effort when I came to Parliament. I really care about ending poverty. I, I think we live in a very wealthy country and we should do more to end poverty. I, I think it is the least we can really do when you think of the social determinants of health, when you think of basic equality, and when you think of social mobility, and when you think of fairness, there are all sorts of reasons for ending poverty that matter to me. And I joined his efforts and then when he was retiring, I committed to helping to take over those efforts. The success of the caucus, you know, just as I say, the the challenges in some ways are that a, a really targeted internal effort can be more successful because people are more pointed. I think building common ground across party lines is the other way to be successful and an all party format helps to achieve that. So I, I've spoken to Karen Vecchio recently, who's going to be more involved in the caucus going forward. A, a bit of, it's obviously been a challenge virtually and with uh, COVID, but there there is great value in building that kind of finding areas of consensus and, and working across party lines and frankly, working across chambers because it's also an opportunity yeah. You know, you're you participate in the effort as does Kim Paid and others, and there, and you guys have been actually very vocal in the Senate on basic income and poverty reduction measures, uh, more so than folks in the House. And so, being able to build those relationships is is a really important part of the caucus because without you sitting in our caucus as a liberal or conservative or NDP member, we don't build those relationships apart as much, at least, right? So those those kinds of 
forums I, th I think are increasingly important and just making sure we talk about poverty more i mean you don't see it talked about enough by the government you, you hear the middle class and those working hard to join the middle class well we should talk more about any poverty and I, we increasingly are mm -hmm. insofar as we have a poverty reduction strategy johnny de when he was in that role was really great but we, we obviously need to do more and i hope it will be a continued focus on the way out of this COVID crisis where we see who have who are the people who have been disproportionately impacted? Well, you, you often hear racialized Canadians, and that is true, but, but it is racialized Canadians principally because it is racialized Canadians who, who are disproportionately living in poverty. And it's actually yeah. a, a, it's a class issue more than anything, and we, we have to address that head on. So just staying, and this is our last question on, on poverty, you've been an, a very active and vocal proponent of uh, universal basic income. So why do you think that universal basic income is the right solution for Canada to pull people out of poverty as opposed to investing in institutional institution building like childcare, affordable housing, uh, urban infrastructure, access to education, which lifts everybody up, including poor people? I'll say a few different things. One, I, I generally don't call for universal basic income insofar as I find the universal language mm -hmm. can confuse. Some people mean very different things by it and I don't want to send checks to everyone. I want everyone to be eligible for checks if they're below a certain income level, but but I don't want everyone to receive checks. And when we've seen universal programs, universal programs are really important, but when, when we see universal cash transfers like the previous uh, universal childcare credit. Mm -hmm. I, they're not programs that I think are the most effective with taxpayer dollars and we should really target those who have the greatest need. The other thing I would say is I, I wouldn't put I wouldn't pit programs as against cash transfers insofar as I think the Canada Child Benefit has been really important. We also need more child care options and we should do both. I mean the successful countries like Finland do both and when we look at our uh, you know, programs for seniors, as an example, old age security is not so very well targeted, but collectively old age security and GIS together make a huge impact upon reducing poverty for seniors. They're basic income programs. We have a basic income, by the way, guaranteed income supplement for seniors. OAS, these are basic incomes for seniors. Uh, Canada Child Benefit is a basic income for families with kids. But when you look at seniors, do we, should we invest more in long-term care homes and helping people to stay at home? Of course, we should have those programs. Denmark sends uh, a healthcare worker around every year to check in with every senior living at home. Sounds like a good program to me. It helps. Denmark's held up as one of the better countries in looking after their seniors. Well, we should we shouldn't gut GIS to get there. We should do both. And and I personally think when I think through basic income, it's from the simple premise that we need a social safety net that leaves nobody behind. And whether it is a national crisis that demands to serve, or whether it is an individual crisis in someone's life. EI doesn't help enough people. Too many people fall through the cracks. It's too rigid in, in its application and its criteria. We, the Canada Workers Benefit is is too small, and and again, it doesn't it doesn't capture everyone. The GST tax credit helps. It's delivered on an annual basis, but it's it's small. So uh, we uh, our social safety net leaves too many people behind. And if you start from the premise that we need a stronger social safety net, in the end, I think a basic income makes a lot of sense. How we get there in the short term, I, I know colleagues of mine want it very fast. I, I would love to see a, an, an early commitment to getting there. 
I've heard the prime minister and finance minister say they don't see a way forward right now, and we see the huge cost from the PBO, so I don't expect it to be in the budget as an example. But that said, there are lots of different ways we can increase basic incomes in this country. Guaranteed income supplement would be one. Canada Child Benefit is another. We increase it in the FES, but the Canada Workers Benefit is massively underfunded yeah. for what we need it to be. There was just a report out of the US, the earned income tax credit pretty well pays for itself. Well, if that's the case because of the social determinants of health and the really targeted nature of it, let's increase the Canada Workers Benefit. And you talk about the all-party anti-poverty caucus. To me, it's a really interesting measure because it's a measure that was first proposed in some ways by Minister Goodale when he was uh, finance minister many years ago before my time. But then it was actually Flaherty that introduced it in a conservative government and actually made it a reality. And then Charlie Angus, when he's running for leadership of the NDP, he's calling for it to be increased. Find me another measure that can have such a demonstrable impact upon poverty reduction and is supported by all parties. I mean, that not that an area we should focus on? And yes, let's get to a basic income, but let's in the short term, if we're being realistic about the politics in which we live, let's increase the basic incomes we've got. So it's not an either or, but an and, and, and. Uh, that little history on the the Canada workers benefit reminded me of where that conversation started. It was with the late great David Pico uh, when he weighed into income inequality. And I remember his conversations with Minister Flaherty and then lo and behold. So it takes many, many people to move the marker. Thank you, Nate, for joining us on this podcast and sharing your insight to our listeners. Be sure to check out our other episodes and subscribe to the podcast and let us know who you'd like us to talk to. I mean, we will follow up as we continue to move the needle and examine Canada's and society's most wicked problems. Thank you and be safe.